Welcome to today's edition of Beat to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting-edge commentary, go to feettothefire.org. That is feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. So last year, before we read the passage, I'll give you an introduction, then we'll read the passage together. Last year, I taught on missions. And since I'm associate pastor of missions and worship, today I'm going to teach on worship in the church. Last year I did missions, this year I'm doing worship. What constitutes authentic biblical worship? In order to answer this question, where in the Bible do we see the definitive worship service? We see it in Nehemiah chapter 8, one of the most famous revival meetings and worship services in all of Scripture. What do we observe in Nehemiah 8 that is instructive for our time and our worship practice? Do we just do things today in church like we did this morning because of denominational preferences or because it's always been done that way, merely tradition, or because a bunch of old guys, as is often suggested about anything traditionally Christian, a bunch of old guys held a secret church council somewhere around the fourth century and invented how to force, force a worship service onto the masses, and thus, quote, organized religion was born. We always hear that accusation. Or do we do this because we're Western? Is there any protocol? Why or why not? Or is it just stodgy tradition that we can squander, ignore, and then reinvent church? Here's my thesis this morning. Worship is, as the title says, worship is the reasonable response to the word of God. Which response includes worshiping God rightly, preaching the word, repenting from sin, rehearsing God's mighty deeds, and rejoicing in his great grace. Can I say that again? Theses are supposed to be short, and mine aren't always short, so let me try that again and stay with me. Worship is the reasonable response to the word of God. Which response includes worshiping God rightly, preaching the word, repenting from sin, rehearsing God's mighty deeds, and rejoicing in his great grace. Now, we need to know the historical context of Nehemiah 8. This is the return from 70 years of exile in Babylon. Remember, Israel and Judah were wicked. They acted wickedly. God exiled them in punishment into the nation of Babylon. Jerusalem was sacked. But in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, they were brought back to the promised land. And this is during the time when Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the wall. This is following generations of national decline from rebellion and wickedness that led to judgment and exile. This is a broken people returning, and there are persecutions all around them. The time is 445 B.C., They just finished building the Jerusalem wall days before, and they come together for a big worship service. So now let's read the rest of Nehemiah 8 and a little bit of Nehemiah 9. I read already up until verse 8, so I'm picking up in Nehemiah 8 verse 9, and I'm reading from the NIV. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. 
Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law. You see a repeated word here? They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths as it is written. Incidentally, footnote, when you see the Orthodox community that lives around us in this area, this time of year building those shelters in their backyards, that's this. They're celebrating the Feast of Booths. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Isn't that good? After so much in the Bible of man's abject failure, that God would be gracious at this moment. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly, Nehemiah 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth, having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Let's, let's pause there. Amen. So that is a quintessential worship service. And now I want to observe five principles characteristic of biblical worship. Five principles characteristic of biblical worship. Number one, worship God rightly. Do not offer strange fire. Remember when Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire in the Old Testament, God consumed them at the altar with fire from the tabernacle because they worshiped not according to regulation. Worship occurs here in Nehemiah 8 according to prescribed patterns and commands in Scripture. This is what I like to call patterns of practice for the people of God. If you're taking notes, that's a great phrase to remember and burn into your head. Patterns of practice for the people of God. Worship is emphatically not an invention of early church fathers. It's not an invention of denominational preference or stodgy tradition. Church and worship is not a novel idea and certainly does not need to be reinvented or tampered with. It is also not a cultural construction or a Western construction, as some of the more woke theologians like to suggest. Worship has always happened according to the same patterns or general themes, and it cannot be dispensed for the sake of novelty or an unwarranted skepticism of tradition i.e., remember the emergent church movement? They started doing church with couches and lounging around in a big circle and coffee and hanging out and talking. No, that's not, that's not worship. And it can't be dispensed for so-called cultural contextualization, changing worship to accommodate the culture. Well, what are some elements we draw from the text? We're going to just simply go right through the text and pull worship elements out of it. And I'm going to go quick, so stay with me. We see the following. 
the presence of all Israelites, meaning entire families with parents and children. No one was skipping service, verses 1 to 3. Assembling together in one place at a prescribed time, a large meeting area, Everyone is together for the purpose of listening and understanding. There's public reading of scripture. There's an appointed leader, i.e. a preacher, who is reading, giving instruction. There's a long duration, approximately six hours. You think our church services are long? (laughs) Six hours. (laughs) Don't tempt me. I have biblical warrant. Quiet attentiveness from the congregation. There's orderliness. There's no complaining. There's no checking the clock. Grumbling that service went too long. Raised wooden preaching platform like a pulpit for the practical purpose of being seen and heard in verses 4 to 5. There is visual access to the preacher, verse 5. There's appointed spiritual leaders and teachers with authority giving assistance, verse 4 and 7. Like elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers. There's people standing in reverential worship, verse 5. Verbal statements of praise like call and response, verse 6. Physical postures, uplifted hands, bowing, verse 6. God's forgiven people, God's forgiven people joyfully feasting and celebrating together in verse 12, which is reminiscent of the Lord's Supper. Conviction and grief over sin in verse 9. Spiritual leaders comforting contrite sinners, verses 9 through 11. And assisting the needy, verses 12, like our weekly collection of tithes and offerings. That was a lot. But these are all patterns we see in the text. And I want you to notice that biblical worship bears orderliness. Orderliness. It's worth noting, and I do have to credit Pastor Randy with this extremely profitable observation he made years ago when we were talking about these two books and shared with me. There is not one mention of any miraculous or charismatic activity, not here nor anywhere else in the entire books of Nehemiah and Ezra. The Old Testament is full of these miraculous activities. There is nothing in Ezra or Nehemiah. The entire revival narrative is quite, listen, ordinary. It's an extraordinary God working providentially in ordinary ways through very ordinary people, just like us. The only thing noteworthy in Nehemiah 8, ready, is obedience. That's what's unique. The reality is we don't have all these ecstatic, supernatural experiences today. We don't. There's no one parting the ocean, walking through fire, calling fire from heaven, speaking a prophecy. If you're around people that are claiming to speak of prophecy, run away. Nor do we need that, nor should we look for that. The modern day idea of revival is wrong. Crazy emotion and wild activity. It's just not here in the biblical record of an ordinary biblical revival. All you see is, listen, one big regular old church service and obedience. There's no charismaticism. There's no disorder. There's no tongues. There's no running around. There's no emotional excesses. In fact, Nehemiah 8 looks a lot more like a 1 Corinthians 14 church service than what is seen in many, quote, contemporary evangelical churches. 1 Corinthians 14 says this, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the Lord's people, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, let's take a closer look at some of these worship correlations between Nehemiah 8, New Testament worship, And today, okay? Nehemiah 8, what we see in the New Testament, and today. And I'm going to go quick again, but stay with me. The people of God, then and now, use platforms or pulpits for preaching and attentively listen 
to a sermonic message delivered from a visible preacher to a gathered crowd, Acts chapter 2, 14, 17, 22. Additionally, just as in Nehemiah's day, we the people of God today assemble together, Hebrews 10.25, publicly read scripture, 1 Timothy 4.13, maintain a plurality of leaders who teach, Titus 1.5, use gestures and call and response, 1 Timothy 2.8, Ephesians 5.14, exposit God's word before a congregation, Titus 2.1, mutually confess sin and repent, James 5.16, eat together in celebration of God's mercy, Acts 2.42, notably in the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.23, and we set aside contributions for those in need, 2 Corinthians 8, 14, and 9, 7. The patterns of today are not unique, invented, or contrived. They are not merely arbitrary man-made constructions. Rather, we continue a heritage of worship practices delivered to us from every prior generation, bearing a legacy of faithfulness from the very beginning until now, and these practices are informed by God's word and ordered design. Amen? Therefore, beloved church, keep in step, act accordingly. In our weekly gathering, let us, quote, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 28. That was a lot of verses, but I wanted you to see, like a tidal wave, how much content from the New Testament correlates with the Old Testament and correlates with right now. We're doing it, folks, just what they did. And why Sunday? Why weekly? Well, it's because it's how the people of God have always done it. In the Old Testament, they gathered on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And in the New Testament, we gather on Sunday, the first day of the week when Christ resurrected. So here's the application. Do not be skeptical of how we do church or what you do when you come every week. You are following timeless patterns that the people of God have always carried out in pretty much the same way. Be encouraged. Gird up your faith. You are walking the walk of the faithful who have gone before you and who will come after you. Persevere. And do not stop coming to church for the weekly corporate gathering. I love that. Now I must pause because I am parched and I'm speaking fast. I've got to get some water. Excuse me. Next is worship by preaching. So we worship God rightly, and we worship by preaching. I'm giving you a little, little slogans right after each one. So worship God rightly, do not offer strange fire. Worship by preaching. Let the preacher preach. Let the preacher preach. When you worship God, give central attention and priority to his word. Worship is the reading, teaching, preaching, and instruction of God's word. That is worship. In Nehemiah 8, we see the word of God informing and energizing the worship. It's the narrative's centerpiece. The word of God has preeminence. It fuels worship, motivates it, circumscribes it. It is the origin and source of worship. In fact, the key word in Nehemiah is Torah, which is the Hebrew word for instruction or law or teaching. Did you notice I pointed out when we were reading how much it says the book of the law, the book of the Torah? It appears no less than 12 times in the narrative. And worship appeals, indeed it must appeal, worship, listen now, appeals to the mind through the word. Worship is not, first of all, emotional. It is, first of all, intellectual. Notice verses 7 to 8. Verses 7 to 8, if you go back, there is intentional exegetical instruction when Ezra's reading, and the Levites, and all those guys I named, come around and help the people understand. 
There is intentional exegetical instruction with interpretation, explanation, application. The whole service, again, is for the purpose of understanding. There is a glaring, noticeable appeal to the mind. Not an emotional appeal. In fact, and this is from your music worship pastor, in Nehemiah 8, there's no mention of singing. It's striking. As already stated, there's no charismaticism, no miracles, but there is this conspicuous appeal to the mind, which, please note, is exactly consistent with the great New Testament verse defining the true Christian life of worship. If you want to get one verse from the Bible memorized and burned onto your mind and heart, I recommend this one. This is Christianity. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of what Christ has done, to offer your bodies, that's all of you, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And here's what it says. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. Mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How can we repent? Christ says, repent. All you weary, all you sinners, come to me and repent. How can we repent if we don't know what God's word is, what we should repent of, and what we should repent towards? You need to renew the mind to actually live a life of worship. Let's make some more observations. The first thing that people do is demand that Ezra bring out the book of the law in verse 1. Did you notice that? Go back to verse 1. End of verse 1. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. Hey, preacher, they said, preach to us. That's the start of the service. Wow, what a church. Folks, let that be your attitude. Do not be like the modern, weak, emaciated, emasculated, spiritually anemic, apathetic, worldly congregants so common in our evangelical churches today who complain that the preaching is too long or it's too tough, or it's too complex, or it's too serious, or too stuffy, or too traditional, or too convicting, or too legalistic, or too theological, or too patriarchal, or too intolerant, or insensitive, or too whatever, or too much of a scheduling imposition, or do we really even need to go to church anyway? Listen, the true people of God yell at the top of their lungs with all their energy and passion week after week, preacher, preach! and preach hard, and preach accurate, and preach fearless, and preach long. Amen. Isn't this the very exhortation and the final charge that Jesus gives to his disciples before he departs? What does he say to Peter and John, his disciples? John 21, feed my sheep. That's the job of the pastors. He says it repetitively. The healthy and righteous church demands to be fed and to be fed well. This is true Christian worship. And I love this part. Isn't this the same priority we see in the early church in the book of Acts? Everybody says, if you're getting introduced to the Bible, read John. I agree. If you're new to this, you never really read scripture thoroughly, read John. After John, go read Acts. It's wonderful. It explains who we and what we are as the church of God. But it's the same priority we see in Acts. Paul's strategy was always the same. Enter the synagogue on the Sabbath day of worship, 
where there is a gathering of the faithful, where there's reading of scripture, and there's rabbis teaching. And then Paul would offer a word proclaiming the good news and the gospel of Jesus. It is a textbook scenario often repeated throughout the book of Acts. Let me take you through it. Don't turn there, just listen. Acts 17, verses 1 to 4. Paul and his companions came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, those are Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, he, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, reasoned, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said, and some of the Jews were persuaded. You see that? the mind. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Acts 9.20, when Paul began his ministry, at once he began to preach in the synagogues. Acts 13.5 at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Acts 13, in Pisidian Antioch, on the Sabbath day they entered the synagogue and sat down. After this is, this is a great scenario. Look at this. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. And standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and he spoke. Acts 13, later on, after the sermon, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And many believed. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Acts 14.1, at Iconium, It happens a lot. Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that many believed. Acts 17.10, on arriving there in Berea, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Acts 17, in Athens, he reasoned, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Acts 18.4, in Corinth, every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts 18, in Ephesus, he, Paul himself, went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Are you getting the point? Acts 18.26, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Acts 19.8, in Ephesus again, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some refused to believe. So Paul left them, and he took the disciples with him, and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So he found another large, he's like, they're not going to believe? We'll go to another large meeting place. It seems to be some sort of academic hall, a lecture hall. They moved over to another large meeting place and kept what? Kept preaching. Acts 28, under house arrest in Rome, Paul regularly preached, quote, from the law of Moses and from the prophets, trying to persuade them about Jesus. That's the whole story of Acts. How could Paul do this so seamlessly and strategically in every town? Well, it was exactly that worship tradition about which we are speaking today, synagogues. There was already a well-established tradition of regular weekly gathering in a large meeting place with reading, speaking a word of insight, persuasion. Indeed, here again, we see a universal pattern for the people of God. The Jews dispersed around the known world had a tradition of synagogues centered around teaching Bible. How else do we know this? During the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15, if you remember, Acts 15, the elders made an appeal to the universality of biblical preaching throughout the entire world. At the council in Acts 15, here's what the elders concluded. Acts 15, 21. For the law of Moses, the Torah has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is what we've always done. Application, what is the point of all of this? My point is, 
This is what we do as the people of God to advance the kingdom of God when we gather for worship. We read, preach, teach, interpret, apply, persuade, and exhort with the word of God. Formally, in sermonic style, in a corporate gathering or assembly of the faithful, we preach with accuracy, with earnestness, with prescribed appointed leaders who rightly handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2. That has always been and will remain the central primary way in which the people of God worship when they come together. We study Know it, learn it, love it, live it, and come to church regularly to hear it, to get a healthy, regular diet and intake of God's life-giving, life-transforming truth. Amen. We worship God rightly, and we worship by preaching. Number three, worship by repenting. I had no idea how thirsty I was going to get this morning. Worship by repenting. Here's your little slogan for this one. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. When you, when you, let me be simple. When you worship God, repent from sin. Let me be even simpler. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Obedience matters. Worship is accompanied by repentance and prayer with confession. Do you know Nehemiah 9, I didn't read it, is the entire chapter is a prayer of confession. Here's how we violated your law, God. Here's how we violate, we are disobedient. It's a whole prayer of confession. This is true worship and the reasonable response to the word of God. Refer back again to Romans 12, 1, 2 that I said was the verse you should burn on your minds and hearts. Here's what it says again. Therefore, I urge you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. Worship is repentance. There are three elements in the Bible always characteristic of a revival in the Bible. And I also stole this from Pastor Randy. I like to footnote that so I don't take credit for it. But he taught me this. Three characteristics. Faithful preaching, an outpouring of prayer from the people of God. The word starts getting preached faithfully, faithfully, faithfully. All of a sudden, the people start praying on their own and corporately together. And then there is massive repentance. The people turn from their sin. And they, re- they revert back to obedience to God. Preaching, prayer, and repentance. That's characteristic of a revival. Not exuberant singing. Not exuberant singing. Exuberant singing is an after effect that is downstream from obedience. Do you understand, dear church? Take a look at the people's responses in Nehemiah 8. Verse 9, they're weeping from hearing the words of the law. And then in verse 12, they have joy over their understanding when it was explained to them. And verses 14 to 18, we see prompt obedience, especially to the Feast of Booth requirements. They're like, it, it teaches us about the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament, and we haven't been doing it for, for like 70 years? We've got to do this. And they obey right away. Nehemiah 9, they spend a quarter of the day reading. They spend a quarter of the day confessing. Nehemiah 9, as I said, the whole chapter is one giant prayer of confession and humiliation, followed by Nehemiah 10, which is covenant renewal. We vow, God, before you and our brothers and sisters in a watching world to enter back into our covenant relationship and obey the Lord our God. That is a good end of a worship service. That is worship, and that is a reasonable response to the word of God. Further, emotional and spiritual fervor is not obedience. Do not confuse emotion and singing with obedience. And again, this is coming from your worship music pastor. I love music. I grew up doing music. It's my whole family. 
does music. It was my career for 20 years before I became a pastor, and it's still part of what I do. And as your music worship pastor, who I love music and I love singing, I'm telling you, do not confuse emotion and music and singing with obedience. Notice the New Testament instruction about singing. The New Testament does talk about singing. And don't turn there, because I'm going to read it to you. Ephesians 5.19, a very famous verse on singing, do you realize, is wedged right in the middle of a section on holiness. Worshipful singing is not an end to itself. Rather, singing is a result and effect of obedience, and it's an avenue to more obedience. But obedience is what matters. Ephesians 5, verse 15. This is right before he talks about singing. Be very careful, Christians, then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, here it is now, with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Do you see how it's downstream from Paul's point on holiness? Same in Colossians 3.16. Perhaps more vividly in Colossians, the verse focuses on the word of God informing our minds and our lifestyles and thus informing our singing. Singing in Colossians 3, and I'm going to read it in a second, is even presented as a means of bringing God's truth to bear on our minds and hearts for the purpose of admonition and maturation. In Colossians 3, the point of the singing is growth and holiness. Listen, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ, that's what we're talking about, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and then he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. But the thrust of these singing passages, guys, in the New Testament is holiness. It's obedience. The current spirit of the age is a trite form of confessional religion. Sing passionate songs passionately at worship events, even while works allegedly do not matter. Do not be deceived, dear church. God will not be mocked with that kind of false pretense of Christianity. Further, I have personal concerns sometimes over these catchy expressions, and I'm the missions pastor. Missions exists because worship doesn't. You've heard that? I'm mildly concerned with that. Or these other things, man's purpose is worship. I'm concerned unless we are properly defining worship, which is Christ conformity. If that's where saying worship is, that's fine. But if it's just singing, those are, those are bad phrases. Guys, God is not looking for exuberant singers around the world. He's looking for obedient people who conform to Christ. Romans 8.28 God works for his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Do you realize that's the point of your salvation, is to make you like Jesus in perfect holiness? Well, we won't reach perfection here, obviously, but that's the goal when we meet him face to face. And in this life, to be as close to that as we can. It's not singing. First Thessalonians, first, first Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, Ready? Singing, no. This is the will of God, your sanctification, holiness. 1 Peter 1.16, be holy because I am holy. That's the purpose of worship, the goal of our faith in all we do, not getting emotionally charged, not feeling good about ourselves, or a weekly pick-me-up. That's not why we go to church. Holiness, the purpose of worship is holiness. So keep in step and repent if you really want to engage in biblical worship. 
Stop sinning. Find the sin in your life. Search it out with lanterns in the deep recesses of your heart. Confess it, repent, and then you are truly worshiping. Look, if we are not repenting and growing in holiness, our worship is pointless. And in fact, close the doors, just go home. Disobedience renders worship worthless. Doesn't God say the same thing to Israel? A very sobering passage from Amos. Powerful. Amos chapter 5. This is God saying to Israel, after God's the one who created all their festivals and all their feasts and all their celebrations and gave them the Mosaic law, in Amos 5, he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Why does he say that? Because they were disobedient. And then he defines worship. He says, I don't want your music. He says this, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what God wants. It's the same for us. Cancel church if we're not a repentant people. If we carry on with sin while we hypocritically presume to bring worship to God, emotional singing that is only a thin veneer over a life of rebellion and carnal living, then cancel church. You have youth events and studio quality, high energy, high emotion worship services, lights, the cleanest and best bands with pop artists, the whole rock star look, state-of-the-art everything, spectators raising hands, falling on the ground, and yet with people continuing in unrepentant, brazen sin in their personal lives. That faith amounts to nothing, it avails nothing, and it only ends in ruin. It is worthless worship. Matthew 15, in the words of Christ himself, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. This is Jesus saying it. Isaiah was right. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. How many times have we witnessed the same sad story of charismatic worship at a youth rally? Ecstatic experiences, allegedly spirit outpouring, only to see that these very youth fall back into a carnal path and walk away from the church and unfaithfulness to Christ, never to return. In fact, my generation is the test generation. Listen, guys, I'm serious. My generation, 41, is the test generation for the consumerizing of Christianity. The generation to tell all of you here, it has not worked. The mainstreaming of ecstatic spiritual experiences has not availed the church, has not delivered the often promised authentic revivals. Rather than growth, we've seen gratuitous emotional excesses, followed by generational exodus from the church, followed by a total reverting back into worldliness, a form of godliness but without the power or substance, 2 Timothy 3.5. And yet all the while, people still claim Christ. Folks, that's not biblical worship. Biblical worship is a transformed life that obeys God's law. Let the cursing man put away his cursing. Let the drunkard put away his drinking. Let the unfaithful man put away his sinning and be faithful to his family. Let the lazy man get up and work. Let the the greedy man open his wallet and give to those in need. Let the spiritually apathetic man start leading his family in worship, reading his Bible, and praying with his household. Amen? This is worship. The modern worship movement is a true candy sugar high. All the excitement of the moment, none of the health or substance. And that kind of emotionally charged worship with no life change and repentance amounts to nothing more than a fleeting faith and a powerless faith. Sure, it's a very sensual experience, but there's no 
real, transformed living. Amen. We worship God by repenting. Worship God rightly, worship by preaching, worship by repenting. You guys with me? All right, we got two more. And I'm really excited about the next one. I mean, I was excited about the first three, but I'm really excited about the next one. Worship by rehearsing God's mighty acts. This is so cool. It's never good to say that as a preacher, because then if you present it and people are like, what's cool about that? You're like, well, all right, I thought it was cool. <laughs> Worship by rehearsing God's mighty acts. Here's your little slogan for this one. Tell the story. Worship remembers the mighty deeds of God in history. Do you notice in Nehemiah 8 that they're reading from the book of the law of Moses? which is at least the first five books of the Bible. The books of the law of Moses, at the very least, are the Pentateuch, the first five books. Beginning with creation, God said, let there be light, and then detailing all of God's mighty works in the first five books, the global flood, the Tower of Babel, all Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, all the way down until God brought Israel to the promised land. Then notice, in Nehemiah 9, immediately following, when they gather to renew the covenant, and when they pray, after they, while they're making confession, while they're confessing their sins, what do they do? They rehearse the mighty acts of God. I want that phrase on your lips and in your minds, church. I want Romans 12, I'm giving you a lot to remember today. Romans 12, 1 to do, memorize that verse. Uh, pra- uh, patterns of practice for the people of God, that's what we do. Here's another one. Rehearse the mighty acts of God. That is worship. Now, if you go over to Nehemiah 9, take a look at verse 6. Take a look at verse 6. Nope. Yeah. Verse 5. But I'm, verse 5, but I'm going to go at the end of verse 5 where the quote starts, skipping all those difficult names to pronounce. They start praying. They've confessed. They fast. They're weeping. Dust and ashes on their head. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the what? Heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts. Creation. They're starting with God's mighty act of creation. The earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram. Now, they start going through the story of the first five books, rehearsing the mighty acts of God. They trace God's faithfulness and mighty deeds all the way down through 32 verses until at the very end they reach today when the exiles have returned. In other words, now listen closely, God is imminent. It's a great word. I want you to remember that word. God is imminent. That's a key theme of Old Testament worship, and I'm going to explain it. It's it's, it's key theme of all worship, but especially in the Old Testament, understanding God's imminency. Well, imminent means, here's what imminent means, ready to take place, happening soon. God is imminent. God is ready to enter into creation and act. God is actively participating in and engaging with creation, our world, to accomplish his purposes and effectuate redemption for his people. God is active. God is mighty to save. God cannot be thwarted. God saves with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Our God is a saving God. That's imminency. Even more, Old Testament worship noticeably centers on the greatest act, redemptive act, the greatest redemptive act of the Old Testament. 
Old Testament worship centers on the greatest redemptive act of the Old Testament. It's always their central theme. It's their gospel narrative. Does anybody know what the Old Testament's gospel narrative is? What is it? It's the Exodus. For me, all of their, their worship and the rehearsing of the mighty acts of God always comes back to zero in on the Exodus from Egypt, the great judgments against Pharaoh and the parting of the Red Sea. In fact, it's in verses 9 to 11 in Nehemiah 9. And... The phrase, mighty hand and outstretched arm, you see it all over the Old Testament, is repeated five times in the book of Deuteronomy, also Psalm 136 and Jeremiah 32. And each time, it's with reference to this great redemptive act, the exodus from Egypt, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Dear church, this is how you gird up your faith, especially when doubts come rushing in. It's all over the Psalms. God has acted We are witnesses, and he will continue to act because he's a saving God. Do not doubt. But when you doubt, rehearse the mighty acts of God in your heart and mind because you know, you know, he is very much alive and real, Yahweh our God. And he has not left us without a witness, but he has acted again and again on behalf of his people with wrathful judgments and righteous salvation, vindicating his own name time and time again. God did flood the earth. Did he not? That's all the response I get. Did not God flood the earth? Yes, he did. He did crush Pharaoh with 10 plagues and struck dead the firstborn of Egypt. These aren't fairy tales. He did part the Red Sea so Israel could walk through on dry land. And then he did wipe out the Egyptians after by closing the sea over them. He did send fire from heaven and consume Elijah's sacrifice in 1 Kings 18. He did appear in the flames of fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the flames did not consume them. And he did shut the mouths of the lions when Daniel was thrown in the den. And he is about to act again on behalf of his people. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens and all the nations will mourn because of Christ at his coming. Listen, church, take heart. God has acted and he will act again. Do not fear. Let his past witness, his mighty deeds, recalling to mind his testimony, let this cast off all doubt as you remind yourself again and again, our God is the God who saves. Psalm 6820. And be ready for your returning king to come in glory. Church, this is worship. Listen. Luke 21. Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Our God is the God who saves and acts. We have got to remind ourselves of that. And a key word in this passage is great. The Hebrew word for great. You see in verse 5, Ezra praised the great God. And then also in Nehemiah 9.32, they speak of the great God. This begs the question, if the Old Testament grand redemptive narrative is the Exodus, what is our great redemptive act to which we hearken back, the centerpiece of our worship. If this is the central theme of worship, God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, what is our great Exodus narrative? Obviously, the resurrection. I said all those things he did, right? He did flood the earth and parted the sea and crushed Pharaoh and sent fire from heaven. Church, he did walk out of that tomb very much alive. Amen? Oh, amen. Amen, that he is not dead. 
Is there a mightier act ever to rehearse in all of history that a dead man got up? The life and ministry and miraculous work and power of Jesus, healing the blind, casting out demons, walking on the water, and then the cross, and finally the resurrection, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 1 to encourage discouraged Christians who are struggling, he says Christians know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And the Christian says, what is that power? That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name. Amen. Don't let the resurrection be a Sunday school fairy tale or a drawing on the wall. He was dead in a tomb for three days. Who ever heard of that? I say it all the time. And if I say it every time I preach, so be it. And if the theme of my preaching is the resurrection, so be it. But where's Muhammad? Where's Confucius? Where's Abe Lincoln? Where's Ronaldus Magnus Reagan? <laughs> Look, he's dead. Where's our Savior Jesus Christ? Oh, he's alive. He got up. And that's something none of us can do on our own. You need somebody to get you up. And I can't wait for him to get me up. That's why I trust him, because he proved it. Church, Christ is our great exodus. Amen. Which leads to the final element of biblical worship. Worship is worshiping God rightly, preaching, repentance, rehearsing the mighty acts of God, and we worship joyfully because of the gospel. So here's your little slogan for this one. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. When you worship God, rejoice in his grace and his rich mercy, which is the gospel message of salvation through Christ. Notice the repeated references in this passage to joy. Three times. And the last two times they talk about joy, verse 10, 12, and 17. It's great joy. So in verse 10, Nehemiah says, Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And why were they grieving? Obviously, it was humiliation in light of God's word. Ezra reads the word, they're like, Wow, we are, we are sinners. Weeping is the ideal response to God's word, no? They, they, read, they read the word, preacher preach. He preaches it and they're like, oh no, you read the law of Moses that we had neglected and we are way worse than we realize. Which by the way is reminiscent of what story in Acts chapter two, right? When Peter preaches, you crucified the Messiah. Like, what do we do? We realize we killed the Lord of glory. And he says, repent. For the promise of life is to you and for all who are far off, who all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Joy. So Nehemiah and the Levites have a response. They say, no, don't grieve. Go and eat and feast together. Stop grieving. God is rejoicing over you, which should give you renewed strength. Today is sacred. In fact, Nehemiah 3 says this, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. Let me read that again. Zephaniah 3.17, listen to this verse. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. Mighty warrior, God saving. That's God's mighty saving acts again. Do you see that? That's what Zephaniah is referencing. The mighty warrior. And then he says, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God loves his people. He loves to forgive his people. Then they all went, had joy. They understood the words. They learned God's truth. They learned his forgiveness. And this is our God, finding us in our naked guilt, 
taking the worst of our sin and removing it and filling us with joy all because of Christ's death in our place. On what basis, though, can Nehemiah claim that God's forgiving? And it's based on the scriptures. Can I read you uh, some excerpts from two great psalms? Listen, and it brings all these points together. You'll see in these psalms, they're rehearsing the mighty acts of God and then focusing, zeroing right in on God's forgiveness. Listen, Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul. Worship, right? He forgives all your sins, redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion. Now, the mighty acts of God. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Now back to his forgiveness. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's the gospel, folks. After all Israel had done, all of their apostasy and idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness, Ezekiel compares them to a whoring wife in the Old Testament. After all the disgusting things they did, after all of what we have done as sinners, that God could be this richly merciful to give them a place and a home and hope again in the promised land to forgive all their iniquity because of who he is and what he has done as their defender and advocate and deliverer. Well, how could they be anything but joyful? In case anybody thinks, wow, he's uh, being a harsh preacher, which I don't think so, but just in case, joy, I'm preaching to you joy. Their tears of grief were transformed that very moment in the worship service to tears of joy. Listen to Psalm 145. This is so cool. I will exalt you, my God. Great is the Lord. I told you greatness is the theme, right? Verse God's mighty acts. Psalm says, great is the Lord. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They tell of the power of your awesome works, God's imminency. And I will proclaim your great deeds. And there it is. The Lord is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And he's rich in love. And all your works shall praise you, Lord. And your people speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts. Verse 17 says their joy was very great. In fact, they had never celebrated the Feast of Booths like they did here since the time of Joshua which is when they first went in the promised land. Because why? Not only was God merciful, but he brought them back into righteous, holy living. The one sad thing about this, though, do you know in Nehemiah, a few chapters later, they break the covenant and fall back into sin. I don't know if you knew that. It's very sad. That's why the the testimony about mankind in the Bible is grievous. So, It directs us to this realization, even though they have this great worship service. For transformation to happen, it must be wrought in us by God according to his gospel in Jesus. Listen, we need to be born again. We can't obey God on our own. We need God to remake us after his own son, which is the goal of salvation. Why do we now in the church worship with joy? Because the gospel promised to be reborn and remade in Christ. Now I'm making an appeal to everyone here. 2 Corinthians 5, listen. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul wrote these words. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And yet, hearing all of this that I've said this morning, and especially this last point on God's great joy, 
If you're rejecting the gospel, why will you die in your sin by rejecting the gospel and all of its joy? Ezekiel says, why will you die, O Israel? Why will you die, sinner? You are spurning and rejecting your only hope. That is a God who is merciful, who has shown himself over and over again merciful, upon whose merciful impulse you must throw yourself and entrust yourself so that you can be forgiven and freed by the blood of Christ shed for you. You can throw yourself today trusting Christ for the full remission and removal of all of your guilt, and God will forgive you and grant you life and great joy and feasting and eternal salvation. Why will you die, O Israel, says the prophet Ezekiel? I'm putting right in front of you the joy, eternal joy of heaven. Come to Christ and trust in the only God who is mighty to save. As we conclude, dear church, final admonition. Worship God according to the patterns of Scripture. Worship by preaching the word. Worship by repenting. Worship by rehearsing God's mighty acts. And worship with joy because of the gospel of salvation. I'm going to end with this final verse which illustrates the healing words of Nehemiah 8, but they're captured in these verses famously spoken centuries earlier by the prophet Hosea. You see healing words in Nehemiah 8. He says, do not grieve. God has forgiven you. Rejoice. Go eat and feast together, which is what we're about to do. And that's reminiscent of these words spoken by the prophet Hosea, which are timely for us today. Listen, come. Let us return to the Lord. In fact, he has torn us to pieces. He has torn us to pieces because of our sin. But he will heal us. Let us press on to acknowledge him. That is worship. To press on to acknowledge and know and love Christ and live in every moment for him, for his glory and light of God's great and rich mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word We thank you that we can now go to communion. Lord, help us to worship acceptably with reverence and awe, as the Bible says, worshiping according to the patterns you have set, worshiping with the preaching of your word, the centrality of your law and your scriptures, repenting in light of what your word says, as I said, the the sinning man to stop his sinning and put it away because he loves and follows Christ. Help us to worship by rehearsing your mighty acts and reminding us again and again, our God does save. Our God is able to save. And in fact, he has saved me through Christ. And so I rejoice with great joy. And if there's anyone here rejecting the gospel, soften their hearts to believe, Lord. This is the only good news to which we can cling that is guaranteed delivery because only Christ walked out of that tomb. We love you and proclaim you until you come again, Jesus. We love you in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.